You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Okay. Um, hi, everyone. It's a bit disconcerting for me to have a list of names on my right, but four faces in my window. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Sandhya Bahuja, and I'm the director of the Institute for International Law and the Humanities. And I'm very happy to be able to convene this discussion today with Jessica White, who is the Scientia, a Scientia Fellow um, and Associate Professor in the School of uh, humanities and languages and in the law school at the University of New South Wales and Jess is a political theorist whose work integrates history, political economy and political philosophy um, and she's recently written this wonderful book The Morals of the Market, Human Rights and the Rise of Neoliberalism published by Verso in 2019 and I'm going to be joined in the discussion with Jess by Valeria Vasquez Guevara and Clewen O'Hara, both of whom are PhD students at the Melbourne Law School. And Valeria is working on um, the history of truth commissions and what we might think of as their world-making function. And she traverses in her work quite a lot of the historical terrain that Jess, your book, crosses in terms of Chile and the Latin American truth commissions more broadly. And uh, Clarewin is working on a conceptual and historical account of consensus in international law from the U European Union to the WTO. And so thinking again about the way that the institutional, the political and the conceptual come together in practices of world making and world ordering. So thank you very much, all of you, for joining us in this discussion. And thank you to all of the attendees who are very numerous. I'd just like to let you all know that this conversation is being recorded and will be used for a podcast um, for ILLA. Many of you may already have read the book. And if you have not read the book, then I strongly recommend that you do. It's a fascinating account um, of the history and conceptual life of the relationship between human rights and neoliberalism. And I think in Jess's own words, she says that her focus is on the ways in which neoliberal thinkers viewed the rise of human rights and then mobilised and developed the language associated with them for their own ends. Although I think that that really under-describes the vast number of debates that the book enters into. Um, so as I was thinking about what bodies of literature your book joined, Jess, I was thinking about the way it brings together at least, or the way it enters into a field between at least three different bodies of literature, maybe four. One would be the kind of north-facing or European origin critiques of rights that I would include, into which I would include people like Costas Dezinas, who would try to reclaim the radical root of rights and argue that their uptake by the state was the end of human rights. Or people like Wendy Brown, who talk about the legitimising role played by human rights. Or people like Susan Marks, who talk about the ways that you must understand structural causes of violations of human rights. Um, but it also joins a kind of new history of human rights that has its own fight within it. So Sam Moyne's famous account of the last utopia, which says that human rights were born during the Cold War, basically um, as a way of giving a moral language to capitalist democracy, if you like, that contested socialism and communism as rival forms of utopianism. Um, and then there's the critique of Moyne by people like Joey Slaughter, who say, it's wrong for Moyne to describe that as the birth of rights because really what that was was the hijacking of human rights in Joey Slaughter's words when all of the radical third world uses of human rights were brought to an end by their mobilisation of that language by the United States essentially. But of course, as well as those north-facing accounts, there's a strong south-facing set of critiques of rights by people like Upendra Bakshi who have much for much longer been bringing together an account of structure with an ambivalent attitude to the question of human rights and saying, for example, that 
there's no necessary innocence or virtue in rights and that trade-related, market-friendly human rights, as he famously called them, do much more harm than good. Um, or people like Anne Orford who said long ago that you can't think of human rights or humanitarian intervention, for example, without thinking of the interventions by international financial institutions. So in other words, if you think about human rights without thinking about global political economy, you will, um, that way lies kind of the road to hell is path paved with those kinds of good intentions. There's also books like Adam Getachew's new book, which basically shows a deep contestation over a form of human rights. So in her story, self-determination goes from being a radical right being claimed by black thinkers to something much more conservative, which is sort of responded to in a counter-revolutionary way by Wilsonian self-determination. And then we have people like um, Fluver and Morofsky and Slobodian who give us histories of the rise of neoliberalism. So in a sense, I'm reading your work against the backdrop of those quite complex accounts of human rights and neoliberalism. Um, can you tell us then where you might locate your book or perhaps you could tell us what inspired you to write it because it might, it might sneak up on that question. Mm. Thank you, Sandy. That's a great question. And certainly all of those people that you mentioned were real influences for me in writing this book and, um, and different, differently so at different points of it. So, I mean, I first came to this book through the lens of writing on human rights rather than on neoliberalism. And it took me to the question of neoliberalism. But I was really interested in the way that so much of the critical scholarship that you've mentioned gestured towards the sort of symbiosis or the historical coincidence between the emergence of human rights as a powerful discourse in the global north and the rise of neoliberalism, but that there was not an enormous amount of scholarship that looked at what neoliberal thinkers themselves made of the question of human rights. And when I started really looking into many of the neoliberal thinkers, I was really struck by how important a role human rights played in their own thought and particularly in the context of decolonization. So the kinds of critiques that someone like Upendra Bakshi makes, um, you see that in many of the neoliberal thinkers, they were very explicitly articulating the kind of model of human rights that he criticises from a very early stage in response to what they saw as the threat of um, post-colonial sovereignty and the threat that decolonization would disturb the international relations of trade that had been developed in the period of colonization. Mm. So there's so many questions that arise from that. Um, one of the things that occurs to me when you say that is that in the book, there's quite a complicated relationship between liberalism and neoliberalism. And I was thinking as I was reading about the very famous post-colonial critiques of liberalism. So, you know, methods, liberalism and empire. And I was wondering whether to some extent in your account, neoliberalism is a kind of operationalization of a liberal project that means that we could think of neoliberalism in the same way that we think of neo-imperialism. So the kind of going global of a morality that after the end of empire, after the end of formal empire, when there's no uh, formal legal control by imperial powers over the colonies, a new kind of governance has to be instituted. So to that extent, it feels like neoliberalism is not as discontinuous from liberalism as some of the people nostalgic for liberalism would imply. Yeah, I think that that's really important. And one of the things that I don't want to do in the book is present the kind of critique of neoliberalism that essentially says neoliberalism was uh, this distortion of this good liberalism that was sort of cooked up in the mountains, in the Swiss mountains, and that prior to the neoliberals, there was nothing wrong with the good liberal order. So, of course, there are all kinds of continuities between the neoliberal project and earlier forms of liberalism. And I think that neither of these bodies of thought can be conceived as if we can give them a single definition. 
that we know what liberalism was and then we know what neoliberalism was. So various neoliberal thinkers draw on, you know, Lockean conceptions of improvement, which are really strong in the way that they, even in the 1960s and 1970s, respond to post-colonial sovereignty. They mobilise all those really standard tropes of waste and resources being wasted by those who don't know how to use them. Mm -hmm. um, many of the kind of million ideas about the need for forms of despotism to govern those who are incapable of sort of rational self-government we see in neoliberal thinkers. So there are all kinds of strands of connection, but I think that what they saw themselves as doing that was distinctive was reacting particularly to a sort of 19th century belief in laissez-faire, and they believed that it was really essential to create a new uh, governance framework for an international economy. And as you say, this was particularly crucial in the context of decolonisation. So I talk at one point in the book about, you know, neo-colonialism was for the neoliberals a project that everything that Nkrumah said about the dangers of neo-colonialism was for the neoliberals an aim. It was about how do they create those structures to ensure that essentially the exploitative economic relations of the colonial period would not be disturbed or displaced by decolonization. And so I think that this aim which was very much continuous with many of the aims of the League of Nations, actually. And that's something that I really stress in the book. I show how many of the neoliberal thinkers, and particularly William Rappard, who was a founding member of the neoliberal Montpelerin Society, but was also the head of the League of Nations Permanent Mandates Commission. So, I mean, his job was the work of civilization. And I show that he was one of the real sort of connections between the neoliberal project and the earlier civilising project of the mandates mm. and that that earlier project really informed the way that the neoliberals thought about international order in the wake of decolonisation. Yeah, so in a way, if the post-colonial theorists revealed the way that liberalism was the morality of empire, you're revealing the way that human rights then steps in as the morality of this new project. Um, so I suppose I, before I hand over to Valeria and Clairwyn, I should probably ask you to tell the assembled crowd um, how then human rights does function to perform that job that the neoliberals wanted it to perform. Yeah, well, what I try to look at is the way that they, they by which I mean particularly the neoliberal figures associated with the Montpelerin Society, founded in 1947, and particularly in the earlier part of the book, I'm looking largely at European neoliberal thinkers associated with the Austrian school, so people like Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, um, as well as the German auto-liberals, um, and a sort of an association of a bunch of different sort of in many ways, quite conservative neoliberal thinkers. Um, so I look at the way they picked up on the language of human rights themselves, and they saw human rights as a language which could preserve what they saw as a, an individual domain, a domain of the private individual over which uh, politics could not step. And they saw this as a language which enabled them to fight back against forms of state-driven redistribution, um, as well as the rise of mass politics more broadly. So human rights was supposed to be a language which preserved an individual domain, including an individual's right to private property. But what was really important was that they didn't just conceptualise human rights in individualistic terms. They made an argument that human rights were not natural rights, that human rights actually had only emerged on the basis of liberal market capitalism. And therefore, if liberal markets disappeared, human rights would disappear too. So human rights essentially became tools not so much to protect the individual as to protect the market order. And so we see that at any number of points, when it came to actually the choice between, say, protecting individuals from torture under the Pinochet regime versus protecting a market order, that they went with protecting the market order. And they saw human rights as mechanisms primarily to prevent political intervention with their preferred market order, and also to license forms of intervention across the planet in order to construct governance regimes that were compatible with forms of private enterprise. 
Mm. It's interesting because the um, at no point do you say that human rights is necessarily a companion to power, but um, maybe we can come back to that question at the end as to whether they can be redeemed or not. Sure. Um, because I think there's a I think there's some quite interesting political insights in the book which um, bode ill for supporters of human rights. Can I um, ask Valeria and Valeria perhaps uh, if you have a question or Claire when following on from what's been said already? Yes, so um, so about what I really like in your book, um, it's how like for my research has provided a lot of, it's kind of the back the backstory to the backstory, which helps us to understand, for example, the protests in Chile now, that sometimes I wonder, oh, now we're all surprised <laughs> if, we, if we had only known certain things before or perhaps been aware of. But um, so I guess my first question is um, how, so you in the book shows, uh, show us how the relationship between human rights and neoliberalism becomes more prominent after World War II. But um, this is also a time of Cold War power struggles, wars of national liberation against the empire and revolutions of different kinds. So um, how did these events influence the interpretation and promotion of human rights? Okay. Um, well, I think that, as you say, this is really the context in which human rights came to prominence, as many scholars have discussed, and also the period in which neoliberalism came to prominence. The point at which I think that the two came together in relation to this sort of broad set of transformations that you're painting was particularly in horror at the, um, the trajectory of decolonization. And so you saw this interesting moment where, for instance, when, when the Bandung Conference happened, mm -hmm. um, you had various figures within the Montpellier Society, notably Alexander Rousteau, who were very positive about the Bandung Conference and saw this as an opportunity to break the link between anti-colonialism on the one hand and anti-capitalism on the other hand. And they saw the kind of criticisms of the Soviet Union that were made by various figures at the Bandung Conference as opening up this possibility for essentially a liberal order in the wake of formal colonialism. Um, but many other figures were really resistant to this and said, no, no, this is actually a real threat to the international division of labor and what's necessary if anti-colonialism is not gonna to lead to anti-capitalism is the development of forms of legal orders and norms that will ensure that political decolonization does not transform economic relations. And so they really drew on the language of human rights in order to try to ensure that political decolonization did not spill over into economic self-determination. And so I have a question that kind of um, builds on that a little bit um, and some of the discussion about decolonization. Ideas of race, social evolution and civilization are recurring themes throughout your book. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit how racialized thinking informed the neoliberal project. And perhaps maybe you could also talk a little bit about how maybe these ideas in an, a kind of embedded form continue to play out in human rights and development thinking. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Yeah, as you say, this is a really central theme of the book and it's central to the very idea of the morals of the market. And maybe if I could just explain how I came up with or where I took that idea. And it's the particular quote, the morals of the market comes from Friedrich Hayek. And in his work, the morals of the market order are the kind of moral framework that a market order requires in order to be sustained. So he was very firmly of the belief that market orders were not natural and that they required legal foundations, but that they also required a particular form of moral sentiments and moral conceptions of what people owed to each other or didn't owe to each other. Now, it's really important to note that he developed this account of the morals of the market explicitly in contrast to what he called a tribal morality or a morality of the small band. So throughout his work, there's an evolutionary narrative where societies evolve um, and become successful. He talks about the survival of the successful by embracing the morals of the market. 
So those societies that are not successful are those that fail to embrace the morals of the market and remain stuck in what he talks about as a primitive or a tribal morality. So this is a deeply racialized narrative whereby the successful are the market peoples. And this provides the frame through which Hayek and other neoliberals interpreted all forms of egalitarianism and economic distribution in their own times. So Hayek talked about all forms of egalitarianism as being the revival of suppressed primordial instincts. And he talks about how because humans for thousands of years lived in egalitarian forms of community where they were concerned with the establishment of shared ends, that these primordial primordial instincts still threaten to break with the morality which a market order requires. So there was this deeply racialized narrative that was taken up in various forms by a number of the neoliberal thinkers. So Ludwig von Mises, who was a mentor of Hayek's, gave a really stark account of the centrality of the division of labor to what he saw as the civilizational superiority. And he said very bluntly, the white races have a better capacity for cooperation via the division of labor. So there was this real intermeshing of race and economics in their thought. And in a way, this was sort of a bastardized account of stadial history drawn from Scottish Enlightenment thinkers like Adam Smith, and Adam Ferguson, but the neoliberal thinkers tended to portray it in really starkly racialized terms. And this very much influenced their account of decolonization in particular. They were very committed to a civilizational narrative whereby civilizational progress required the adoption of market norms. So while they're supposedly relativist and believe that there's no single norm that can be, um, that anybody can determine as being the best, they nonetheless have this idea of civilizational success equated with market success, which justifies imposing a very prescriptive account of social and economic development on every society across the planet. And they saw human rights as being part of this morals of a free society or morals of a market society, which would support the flourishing of market orders across the globe. And they were very explicit that human rights were a legacy of what they called the West or Western civilization. So my first chapter is on the language of civilization and just how central it was to the neoliberals. So against any of the kind of overlapping consensus notions of human rights, which saw human rights as bringing together norms from numerous distinct civilizations, religions, economic perspectives, they were very clear that human rights were the legacy of something called Western civilization and needed to be imposed across the planet if a market society, which was the only society which would foster success, was to flourish. Great. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, I was so struck by some of the kind of racialized logics, um, particularly in relation to Chile and kind of talking about that the Latin Americans are inherently romantic. So um, dictatorship was necessary kind of to um, establish the neoliberal project there. So um, just quickly following on from that, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the neoliberal thinkers um, thought about democracy, because I think that this is part of the conception of why it's an amoral kind of way of thinking um, stems from the collaboration of people like Milton Friedman and Hayek in Chile and within a dictatorship um, setting. So maybe you could just um, shed light on that connection. Sure. I mean, Chile is a really good example because it's one where um, while the neoliberals consistently depicted their own involvement with Pinochet's regime as being oriented to freedom and to rights, they were very, very critical of the idea of democracy. So Hayek, for instance, met with Pinochet and talked to him about the dangers of what he called unlimited democracy. And unlimited democracy was nothing particularly crazy. He wasn't talking about workers' councils. He was talking about the form of representative democracy that existed in much of Europe. Um, and he argued
argued that this form of democracy was a threat to a market order and that no market order would ever successfully grow up under conditions of unlimited democracy. And it was likely that in conditions of unlimited democracy, any market order would be destroyed. So he and all of the other neoliberal thinkers in that period were very convinced that the rules that govern the market order should not be susceptible to any kind of popular contestation that any idea that you give the people any empowerment to challenge the rules on which the economy functions is just a recipe for disaster. So they were very sceptical about democracy. I mean, Hayek had his plans for um, a sort of um, voting system whereby every person would be able to vote only once in their life for someone amongst their peers in a sort of respectable age and out of the respectable classes. So there were certainly no friends of democracy. And while we tend to think of democracy and human rights as aligned, they tended to portray a very, very different um, lineage where they saw democracy as stemming from this Rousseauian um, sort of tradition of the general will, which they cast as the origin of totalitarianism and saw rights as being about constraining politics and therefore necessarily constraining democracy. Yeah, so um, in relation to to this and the point that you were saying about the civilization um, narrative, now that something that I, I've always found um, in my research, what I've seen is that once democracy is established. Um, there are a lot of debates about what's worse, if living in a dictatorship or living in a democracy with neoliberalism. So something that um, I found very interesting in your book is this point that you make about how, and this is in, in your words, a minimum focus on basic needs was the seed to make human rights and neoliberalism compatible. So often, um, when they're often during this transition to democracy, there are a lot of high hopes about um, the sort of quality of life and a better life that this new period brings. But then to justify the failures or disappointments, I guess, um, a lot of the people involved in those processes said, well, say, um, well, you know, we had to compromise. So when I read this um, in your book about the minimalist focus, I think it really invites the reader to uh, seriously consider what goes into setting those minimum standards. And I think you talk about that in the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights and those debates of um, you know, different pe people from the Global South and Eleanor Roosevelt as well, uh, and, their, and that struggle to determine this flexible minimum standard, but what's the, at what price? Does that comes. So I was wondering if you could, um, yeah, just share a bit more about how this minimalist rationality uh, keeps operating or manifesting nowadays. Sure. Yeah. Well, when I talk about minimalism, I talk about it particularly in relation to social and economic rights. Mm -hmm. And here, my argument is quite distinct from, say, Sam Moyne's recent argument in his book, Not Enough, which argues that there was a much later shift from egalitarianism that he sees as expressed in the Universal Declaration of Rights towards a minimalist focus on basic needs, essentially keeping people alive. But I look back at the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and show how this argument about basic needs versus egalitarianism was very much there from the beginning in the arguments about uh, social and economic rights. And that while you had, for instance, the original draft that Humphreys put together of the declaration, which he drew from numerous constitutions, particularly in Latin America, talked about a right to um, pleasant housing and to good food and it was a really sort of expansive conception of the good life and in the course of the drafting this was really paired back using this language of a right to a standard of living and this language came from the ILO but it initially actually came from the Ford Motor Company which had conducted surveys on what an adequate standard of living would be that would keep a worker alive and productive in the factory and this language which was particularly pushed by the United States was explicitly used against 
um, absolute demands for, say, healthcare or education, in the end, largely due to the combined advocacy of the Chinese delegate Peng Chung Chang and the Soviet delegate, rights to healthcare and to education and to food and clothing ended up being incorporated into the declaration. But that took a lot of struggle against those, particularly the United States, who just wanted this right to a standard of living, which was always conceived as minimalist and it was also conceived as flexible, not requiring any kind of demand upon the state that it had to fund these things, for example. So I suggest that that sort of minimalism and flexibility of the standard of living was already a sort of a seed of this later minimalist focus. And that actually people tend to think that neoliberals were against any form of social welfare at all. And in the case of Ludwig von Mises, that was true. But for most of the others, they were actually quite concerned about how you provide a minimalist welfare system that does not mess with the overall market order. So it needed to not spill into egalitarianism and it needed to not mess with the, um, the sort of structures of market signals which forced people to take responsibility to their own, for their own fate. But they were very worried about the rise of mass politics and what they called the social question. So forms of minimalist welfare were very much on the early neoliberal agenda. So I suggest that even at that early stage, there wasn't actually as much divergence between the model of social and economic rights that made its way into the Universal Declaration and the model that was endorsed by neoliberal thinkers at the time. And so I think that the current focus on minimalism and basic needs that we've seen and that Sam Moyne's book really nicely traces um, has its roots much earlier. Mm -hmm. oh, I think that um, but, uh, invites one more question before I turn to the floor and invite questions from the attendees, which is um, I think as I listen to you, it sounds a bit like one could listen to you and think, well, you're really just criticising a particular version of human rights. And I think that people who want to, to conduct a struggle, a political struggle in terms of human rights, will try their best to read your book in that way. But I think there's a more damning critique of human rights in your book, which is in a sense how the historical story illuminates the conceptual notion of human rights. And so when I read your book, I was expecting it to be more about a contest between versions. And I was surprised that it was much less a contest between versions of human rights and more a story of almost something, not necessarily inherent, but something about the way that the juridicalization of political struggle in the form of rights will inevitably tend toward uh, a morality, as you rightly say, that will benefit the powerful. And so I was thinking about the way that the story that we've been telling has been about the global career of neoliberalism and the global career of human rights and about the way that people in the South would have told you about the effects or told us about the effects of austerity in combination with the minimalist rights discourse as the, you know, precisely what everybody went through in the global south in the 1980s. And I was thinking of Richard Drayton, the historian's line that um, empire comes home in the corruption of democracy and the way that the neoliberalism that's being unrolled in the West now or in the North is also accompanied by a human rights story, which you, I think, are revealing to be spectacularly not just not enough, but very much likely to be complicit. So if there is a redemptive dimension, it's so hard to find, a redemptive dimension to human rights, it's so hard to find that what we really need is a different vernacular in which to contest, in which to conduct our political struggle, which, which can't be human rights. Um, discuss. <laughs> <laughs> um. Thanks, Sonia. It's a great question. And I'm really fascinated by how people read mm. what, whether this is a redemptive account or not. And particularly um, at the end, I make a, um, 
a claim, it's the last line of the book, that a break with neoliberalism requires a break with the morals of the market. And some people take this as meaning it mean, needs a break with human rights. Mm. Others as it needs a break with this specific human rights. And I didn't actually realise at the time quite how ambiguous and capable of being read in multiple ways this was. Yeah, yeah. I um, don't believe you. I think you, I think you <laughs> left the words human rights out of that sentence on purpose. No. <laughs> Look, I... Um, I think on the one hand, I'm trying to do two things, one of which is to show that there were other powerful conceptions of human rights that were mobilised, particularly by thinkers and actors in the global south in favour of things like a right to self-determination and economic redistribution. And so I don't want to replicate an argument that the only human rights is what Amnesty International says human rights is. Mm. On the other hand, yes, I think that the situation that we're in now is one where what I want to show is not just that human rights were powerless companions or that they were not enough in the face of neoliberalism, but that human rights NGOs were very much complicit in the rollout of neoliberalism and I show that in the Chile chapter in the context of looking at Amnesty International. Can you generalise, uh, can you generalise responses? So have you, because I notice you've been talking about this book probably more globally since the lockdown, ironically. <laughs> um, and have you noticed different people in different places respond in different ways? Are there any patterns? I think that people who are particularly, well, I mean... Actually, the patterns are, in a way, not that surprising. People who work for human rights NGOs or conduct studies for the World Bank tend not to like it very much um, and see it as simply abstract and not relevant to what they're doing, interestingly. Um, whereas I think that there are a lot of people who feel like they do want a stronger critique of human rights politics and also... Um, a deeper understanding of the complicities between human rights and neoliberalism. So I think mm. what's probably been most surprising to people are the really stark examples in the book of that direct complicity. So, mm. for instance, I have the example of the think tank or foundation set up by Medicine Sans Frontieres mm. in the mid-'80s, Liberty Sans Frontieres, which was explicitly set up to challenge third-worldism and to argue against structuralist accounts of global mm. economic inequality. Um, and against the new international economic order. And this was really stark. And the Medicines on Frontier people were working alongside, say, Lord Peter Bauer, the most prominent neoliberal development economist to come out of the Montpelerin Society um, and making an argument against what they called as colonial guilt and talking mm. about the need to get over colonial guilt. And this was a theme that the neoliberal thinkers had been discussing since the 50s, but that it was taken up explicitly by major humanitarian NGOs in mm. the service of a human rights campaign in the 80s was really striking. So some people have been surprised by that kind of development. I think certainly the, the impetus of the book points not towards reclaiming a better human rights, but towards trying to invent other vernaculars, as you suggested, for how we think about the world that we want today. And I do certainly end on a note that's very sceptical of some of the attempts to mobilise human rights today against economic inequality, particularly mm. Philip Alston's work, um, as he's just resigned, but as the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, which to me risks replicating the problems in so much as he tends to see the agents of this um, move towards taking economic inequality seriously in human rights terms as the international financial institutions, mm. which need to take this more seriously. And it seems to me that it's a way of allowing these institutions and the system that they've um, constructed to evade responsibility and also to evade the responsibility of human rights NGOs for their own role in propping up the neoliberalisation of the world. Mm. I have many more questions, but I'm going to offer attendees the um, chance to ask questions. Um, Clarewin and Valeria, before I hand over, do you have another any questions you'd like to pose, or shall we shall we allow people from the floor to pose a question? Um, I have 
maybe one quick question mm -hmm. um, just before we do that, um, which just kind of relates to what you were saying about some of the striking examples that you provide. And they, it is so overwhelming how obvious the connection between um, neoliberalism and human rights is once you read your book. But you very much start it from the position that these are often seen as very distinct projects. Um, and I think that that's quite right, that people kind of are shocked a bit by this association sometimes. Um, do you have any insights as to how this connection disappeared from view? Um, and perhaps do you think that international law with its own tendency to separate the political and the economic has played a role in that kind of um, obfuscation? Mm, I think that's a really good question. And yes, I think that um, international law has certainly played a role in the way that you described. And that in a way, I mean, there was a whole period in which human rights NGOs just didn't really talk about the economy at all. And quite explicitly in the sense that, you know, for instance, Amnesty International, it was a long, long time until it changed its mandate to deal with economic questions. Human Rights Watch has always been quite consistent in the position that human rights work requires naming and shaming and that you can't do this in relation to structural inequalities or impersonal kind of economic forms of domination. So I think on the one hand that these human rights NGOs just for a long time portrayed themselves as doing something different and they took the the emphasis off economic questions but I guess what I want to do is show that in its early stages this was absolutely a deliberate uh, attempt so the Medicine Sans Frontier example is one where what this Liberty Sans Frontier was set up to do and did in association with neoliberal thinkers was say, we need to stop talking about the global economy and we need to start talking about the predations of individual leaders of post-colonial states. Mm. Because as long as we're talking about the global economy and as long as we're talking about the legacies of colonialism, we're excusing human rights abuses. So that was really portrayed as a stark dichotomy in those early days. And there was really a concerted effort on behalf of human rights defenders to deliberately take the emphasis away from economic relations, away from economic structures, to stop talking in structuralist language at all. Mm. And so I think that that shift could then be naturalised and a certain set of themes around civil liberties and around the kind of human rights campaigns that these NGOs then launched could seem to be progressive, but it was on the basis of a prior delegitimization of talking about the economy at all. Mm. Let me ask um, the attendees if anybody would like to pose a question with their audio, um, in which case they can raise a blue hand and I can allow them to talk as the vernacular of the Zoom goes. <laughs> Patricia Tewitt um, has a question. Patricia, I'm going to give you the word. It says I can't allow you to talk because you're using an older version of Zoom. Um, so I'm elevating you to a panellist. Let's see if that works. Do we have a second question while we're waiting for Patricia to appear as a panellist? I noticed that there's one down there in the Q&A about egalitarianism. Okay, so the question is... Um, I have a quick question. This is from Nicolas Sika. Sorry if I've mispronounced your name. I just had a quick question about the way Jessica's using egalitarianism in her discussion of neoliberal thinkers. It seems different to how I understand it contemporarily. Okay. Um, I'm not sure entirely of which contemporary discussions you're talking about, but I was using it, I think, particularly in relation to to Hayek and his claim that all egalitarianism is a revival of suppressed primordial instincts. And what he meant by egalitarianism essentially was any form of economic redistribution, which aimed to equalise wealth in a society, um, even in quite minor ways. So the welfare state, to the extent that it overstepped the boundaries of pure um, catering to needs to ensure that people didn't starve was considered to be a form of egalitarianism. Um, and so all of these um, dynamics of his own time, particularly in the aftermath of the Second World War, he saw as being forms of egalitarianism that were dangerous and that needed to be um, suppressed if the morals of the market were to thrive. So we've... Uh 
been joined now as a panelist by Patricia Tewitt, who many of you may not know, but Patricia is an extremely well-known scholar of international law, I mean, law and race and migration. And it's wonderful to see you, Patricia. Thank you for joining us. I had to promote you to participant, uh, to panelists to let you ask a question. So please go ahead. Thank you, Sandra. And apologies for the interruptions. I'm getting used to this technology. Um, first of all, um, thanks very much uh, to Jessica. I, I read the book actually over the weekend and, and was really uh, very much enlightened by it. I just have two brief questions. The first is based specifically in relation to chapter two, uh, where you talk about uh, social and economic rights. And um, the government responses to the coronavirus has really put the question of welfare very much on the agenda. And I think the way in which the book in that chapter um, ex explain, it gives us a sense of how this debate is likely to, to be played out. But what I wanted specifically to ask is, do you think that the now widespread uh, need for welfare um, is likely to alter what you describe as the implicitly racialized um, discourse around welfare? Mm. Is, is, is the fact that so many people in so many different circumstances are now being called upon, if only temporarily, uh, to seek welfare. Is there, is there a chance that there might be a, a shift in that discourse? Um, that was the first question. I just had one, one other um, question. Um, I read this very much as a historical and philosophical exposition of the relation between um, uh, neoliberalism and human rights. And, and I was quite interested that the European Union legal order didn't really figure very prominently in that account. And in some ways, you could argue that that, is, that order is actually an exemplary form of that relation. So I wonder if you could just say something about your, your choice of focus. Yeah, um, <laughs> thank, you. thank you. They're great questions. Um, in terms of the, the contemporary, yes. I mean, obviously looking at the way that responses to COVID-19 are playing out in relation to this, the arguments that the neoliberals were making against healthcare being seen as an absolute right, for instance, are really stark. In terms of whether it will lead to a shift in the racialization of welfare, um, I must say I'm not entirely optimistic. It seems to me that on the one hand, um, COVID-19 has revealed extremely starkly the racialization of um, health and the fact that um, there's a very, very stark um, global racialized inequality about the way that responses to COVID-19 in terms of health are playing out. And one of the things that has been really striking, say, in the current context of Australia is that on the one hand, we've seen, for instance, the doubling of uh, welfare payments of the dole. But this goes with a sort of a sense that current recipients of unemployment payments are not like those people who used to be on the dole, um, who all of the kind of moralisation very much racialized in terms of who receives the dole, those who are not responsible for their own welfare and that of their families. So we're being told today that this is an exception, that in a sense, good upstanding people who want to take responsibility for themselves now require welfare and so it's legitimate to double it. It doesn't need to pay the kind of punitive function that it was. And this is not just in Australia, obviously, like the Brookings Institute, for instance, is writing about how in the context of the coronavirus, the, the need to prevent the moral hazard of welfare is less, um, less significant than it would be in normal times, but that as soon as this uh, crisis is over, we will need to go back to balancing the moral hazard of welfare payments against their functioning, keeping people alive. So on the one hand, I hope that in making clear the starkness of uh, who has healthcare and who doesn't, this can create an avenue for potential um, challenges to um, 
the way that health systems are operating. And obviously this is extremely stark in the United States. Um, but I don't think that in and of itself, um, responses to coronavirus are necessarily going to challenge this kind of racialization. And one of the things that's been, that I've been thinking a lot about and that it's very striking is here in the Australian context, and I think similar things are playing out. We have a, a liberal government um, and we see things like, our Liberal State Premier here in New South Wales was asked about how much she'd thought about the economic consequences of um, keeping people, um, of closing down businesses, of the kind of social distancing. And she said, oh, I didn't think about it at all. The economy was just the collateral damage. That was her term. And it's this sense coming from even people on the right that it would be horrifying to prioritise the economy over people's health, which, of course, they do all the time. Um, in contrast, Richard Epstein, the law and economics professor, caused this sort of outrage um, and rightly so, when he said, these deaths are no more important than any others, the same economic calculus applies. But I think that there is a sense when that economic calculus that these neoliberal thinkers have always taken for granted is put to people in very stark terms of how many people are you prepared to see die in order to promote your preferred economic agenda, then it looks obscene. And I think that the response to Richard Epstein's um, comments sort of really brought that to the fore, that when we're asked in concrete terms to make these kind of decisions, people perhaps make different decisions to the ones that they would simply accept as normal, if it were just a matter of letting people die in a more mundane kind of a sense. Um, just quickly in relation to the EU, yes, absolutely, the EU is a really classic example of the kind of auto-liberal in particular form of governance. Um, I guess it was just a decision of what I talked about and what I didn't, and I felt like my particular interest was on the way that neoliberal thinkers discussed colonialism and how they responded to decolonisation. So I decided to look at the example of the new international economic order and also look at the way that... Um, they mobilised this very racialized language in Chile. Um, but I think there's excellent uh, work already on the European Union and particularly Quinn Slobodian's book, The Globalists, and his recent work on neoliberal debates about Europe really highlight the neoliberal tensions about the European project. So mm. thank you. Any further questions from the attendees? If you want to put up your blue hand... There's a, in the chat, it says that Dina would like to ask a question. Okay. Can I, Dina, I'll try and um, allow you to speak. There you are. Thank you. That was great. Uh, so actually funny that you mentioned uh, Epstein because I actually wanted to ask you a question about like the law and economics crowd and their relationships, like let's call them like classical neoliberalists. So like Hayek, Mises, etc. Um, because on the one hand, there are personal and like network connections, and especially through Chicago, but at the same time, this idea of neoliberalism as a moral order is pretty strange to the law and economic, both strange as in unfamiliar and strange as is weird. It doesn't really sit with it very well. Um, so I was wondering, I mean, I know this goes a bit beyond um, the scope of your book, but like if you, um, if you have any thoughts, especially about um, the geographical relevance of these morals of the market in the sense that like, for example, in the US, if you talk about human rights, especially human rights and civil rights, you're kind of signaling you're a socialist, right? Whatever you mean by that. Like, we're, uh, and, and that one could say that's partly because the law and economics crowd has determined much more what neoliberalism is in terms of at least of ideas than Hayek of Mises or these people. So I was wondering what this tension or disjuncture between the two also tell us about human rights. Mm. Mm, thank you. That's, that's a great question. Um, in terms of the geographical reach, in a way, what I was trying to do was uh, get away from the really United States focus in much writing on neoliberalism. And so 
it seems to me that there's a lot of discussion which my book really orients itself against of neoliberalism as a purely amoral discourse. And I don't deny that this is true of certain neoliberal thinkers. When you see, say, Becker and Epstein discussing, um, Gary Becker and Epstein discussing, for instance, what should be done about gay marriage, and they end up sort of coming to the agreement that all marriage should be replaced by voluntary short-term contracts between people of any gender. This is clearly not a conservative position, whatever it is. It's not an old school conservative position. And that kind of neoliberalism has really got a lot of attention and a lot of really great scholarship, particularly following on from Wendy Brown's work on the relationship between neoliberalism and social conservatism. And then Melinda Cooper's excellent book, Family Values, which really takes that a lot further. And I think that the argument that they make about how was it that this amoral neoliberalism found common cause with socially conservative thought um, is a genuine question in relation to the United States. But I think that what I was trying to show is that we don't actually have to look outside the canon of neoliberalism to find these socially conservative defences of family values and Western civilization. that actually that moralising discourse was very much part of the development of neoliberalism from its inception and that you saw it very, very strongly in the defences of the family um, developed by particularly the German auto-liberals um, in their opposition to proletarianisation and what they called massification. You saw it very strongly in a figure like Hayek. And so my point is not to deny that there are neoliberal thinkers, uh, particularly associated with the Chicago School, who went in a sort of economic imperialism, amoral kind of direction. But it is to say that if we reduce neoliberalism to that and fail to recognise that there was a very strong moral agenda that was part of early neoliberalism, but was also really central to the way that neoliberalism was implemented in a whole range of countries, then we missed something really central about it. So I speak less about the United States and the Chicago School, although in relation to Chile, I also do want to show that Chicago School figures actually mobilise much more of this racialized moral understanding of the superiority of Western civilization than is often recognised. And that, for instance, um, as Claren mentioned, in relation to Chile, they mobilised this whole notion of Latin Americans as being beset by a romanticism, by a failure to take responsibility. And they use these really strong sort of cultural racialized stereotypes, for instance, talking about how Asians are self-reliant. Anything that happens to them, they think it was an act of God and they just go about taking responsibility and getting on with things. And we need to introduce something like that in Latin America. So I do want to show that some of this kind of moralization of um, a sort of a civilizational narrative is also there for the um, Chicago school type people. But my focus is really on the more conservative strands of neoliberalism. Mm. I think, do you think we have time? Would you be willing to take one more question? Sure. So Kanti Patiwi's posed a question in the Q&A, which I think follows on nicely from what you're talking about, about the civilising mission underpinnings of neoliberal global discourse in any case, because she wonders if you could say something about anti-corruption discourse and whether there's a relationship. So she's thinking of the Indonesian case, but thinking about the way that anti-corruption discourse uh, intersects, I suppose, with neoliberalism and human rights in its in their global careers. Mm -mm. Um, yes, look, that's really interesting. And it's not something that I have particularly researched in relation, like I don't write about it in the book, but it does seem to me that this um, anti-corruption package is in some ways continuous with the kind of um, shifting of focus away from... Um, global capitalism and away from structural forms of inequality and to the individual mismanagement of individual states. Um, and so the kind of arguments that the figures associated with Medicine Sans Frontier were making in the mid-80s about the need to 
get away from talking about um, the legacies of colonialism and start essentially treating each nation as being a self-contained entity that was purely responsible for its own poverty and its own violations of rights would also intersect with anti-corruption discourse as well. I think um, I know there's going to be more questions and I certainly have more, but we may have to bring the discussion to something of a close for the moment. And I was just thinking about the way that the best books have that tendency to make you go, oh, wow, and oh, of course, at the same time. So you read them with a sense of wonder and discovery, but when you get to the end, you're like, yeah, of course. And I think that your argument about the morality underpinning neoliberalism is exactly I had exactly that sense because, of course, we all know from Marxist critiques that the economy, the economic and the political actually cannot be separated. And yet the way we thought about neoliberalism sort of assumed that someone had succeeded in actually making that separation. But just hearing you talk about the thinking about the way that the morality of welfare recipients has played so much into the possibility of making welfare livable in Australia in the context of coronavirus, I think reveals absolutely the differential moralisation that goes into different kinds of welfare recipients. So um, I think your book's going to be really useful, not only for people who are interested in history, but also for people who are interested in the future. And I really commend it to um, someone to write a manifesto that comes from the comes from the revelations of the book. So thank you very much, Clairwyn and Valeria and Jess, for a wonderful conversation. And thank you all to the attendees for participating so quietly. <laughs> As if you had a choice. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you all. Thank you. Fabulous. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.